podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you doing today? I am doing as well as can be expected, John. It is uh, day four of yet another military excursion into a foreign country by a crazy person. So, uh, you know, what, what can you say about that? Yeah, another one of those, huh? <laughs> another one of those, you know. And, and I hear Canadian tyranny is uh, fast making its way into America, uh, if you're going to believe Fox News. So, I know there's a lot of talk of potentially a boot and poutine. So, uh, I am ready and willing for that tyranny to come and sway, John. If you have anything you can do to kind of move that forward, I'd appreciate that as well. I mean, I certainly live in one of the places where uh, that seems to be taken more at face value than uh, anywhere else uh, within Canada. So I'll see. Uh, I'll see what I can do about uh, you know getting on the red phone to Trudeau and forcing everyone to po- eat poutine or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> I do like poutine. Whatever it's good. I had it yesterday. <laughs> the, there's no problem here. Um, Chris, uh, this is. Uh, you know, normally speaking, we in our episodes we have you know two of us, two episode, uh, two movies. Uh, it's called Cinema Duel. It's our our podcast is a very two uh, focused episode, but we had actually uh, for this episode have ourselves a guest. And why don't you do the lovely job of introducing our guest? Yeah. So every once in a while, uh, we manage to find a third person who is as dorky and nerdy about movies as we are. Um, so uh, I think it's no secret at this point, a lot of the people that we've had involved and even how John and I got to know each other is through um, metal music, uh, specifically through the hashtag Metal Bandcamp Gift Club, uh, where a bunch of people got together and just started the kind of the community kind of thing of sharing music with each other and gifting music to each other. And a whole bunch of connections were made. One of which was with our guest today, uh, Mr. Dan Morris, who, again, is one of those few people who, uh, once you start digging in and getting to know somebody, you find out, oh, there's someone who, you know, maybe we got together through extreme music. But as we've come to know Dan, just as ridiculously nerdy and dorky and a lover of film uh, as we are. So, Dan, thank you for joining the group. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, it, it's it's very uh, warm in sunny Florida. Um I'm really excited to be on the show today. Thank you for inviting me, both of you. Happy to have you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you you came, you were, we've had a couple of guests where we were like, hey, let's, you know, we can think of this or we can think yeah. of that. You were our first guest who right off the bat is like, oh, if I'm coming on, I want to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> so why um, don't you kick off who we're talking about <laughs> and why we're talking about this person? So today we're talking about Paul Verhoeven, who for my money is the greatest living director on the planet, just because he's so crazy. His films are so individual and just so interesting. And like, yeah, his movies are violent. Yeah, there's a lot of sex in his films, but there's always something else under all of that. And he uses like the staple when he was making movies in Hollywood, because the movies we're talking about are his Hollywood movies. He uses like a lot of the Hollywood genre staples to just make these very trenchant, very like, incredible statements about American culture, but also culture in general and through genre, which is what fascinates me endlessly about his movies. And they're so entertaining. All of his movies are entertaining on a surface level. So we should also note that uh, though this is not a visual medium, Dan has come equipped with his Robocop shirt. Uh, He has an auteur filmmaker on his T-shirt, which we will talk about uh, since there are connections there. Uh, He's got his Paul Verhoeven book. Um, (laughs) John, you and I are probably not going to be nearly as uh, uh, 
huge a fan of Paul Verhoeven. I, I, I can't count him as my favorite filmmaker of all time. Uh, but I am delighted to talk about this because I think there's some juicy stuff to get into yeah. uh, and, and to discuss. So we should probably just kick off with uh, just let's just get right to the meat of it, because I think this is where we're going to focus a lot of our conversation. Dan, yeah. what is your favorite film of all time that's going to kick off this episode? <laughs> It's my favorite movie of all time. I I will not. I make no apologies for that because it's just it's. So I have a funny story about how I first saw RoboCop. Um, I was like six or seven. My parents had we we'd gone to visit one of my family members, and my parents and the family member went out that night and left us with a babysitter who my parents did not know or vet. And the babysitter's like, "Okay, we're gonna watch this movie called RoboCop," and I'm like six like i said i'm like six or seven i'm like i i can't watch r-rated movies because i was a good catholic boy who did not want to upset his parents um and they're like it's fine you'll be okay nothing's gonna happen uh i feel like that movie may have warped my seven-year-old mind um <laughs> that seems but, reasonable to assume yeah, yeah. yeah. robocop's my favorite movie because it's one it's structurally really fascinating because if you look at the movie it's three acts and in each of the acts, it's essentially the same story in each act. It reflects itself in the movie. And I've seen, I forget there's a term, but if you watch the movie, it's essentially the same movie in forwards and reverse. So scenes at the beginning reflect scenes at the end. But there's also all of these incredible thematic details. Like I'm, we got so, when we were in Trump territory, everybody kept making jokes about uh, fucking idiocracy, which is a movie I like. But every time I watch RoboCop, it, I was so glad that movie didn't get dragged out because that movie just feels so relevant and pertinent to what we live in today, where you have a corporation that is controlling the military. It's a military industrial. It's a commentary on the military industrial complex. Uh, they control. They've turned hospitals into a for-profit film thing because they mentioned all the it's like previously these industries were not like for profit, which was like the military hospitals. And I forget the other one. I think it's the police. I think the only thing that movie doesn't get right um, about our world today is the cops who are not other than RoboCop and Ed 209. The cops are underfunded, but that's also sort of the point. I think there was the, that, that I didn't want to bring it up, but I'm probably going to bring it up anyways. The person who was like, oh, this movie's copaganda. Well, no, because you have cops that are being purposely underfunded so that a corporation can basically gentrify a neighborhood and they see the cops as basically disposable Sorry, there's a lot. <laughs> let's let's start here because I think yeah. there's there's a. Th I'll yeah. make no secret about kind of my opinion of these films. This is the best yeah. film of the three that we're going to talk about. I think it's the film yes. that speaks uh, speaks to modern times better than mm -hmm. any of the other films we're going to talk about. Yeah. I think it's the most successful in terms of having a very sharp satirical eye on America, especially yeah. America in 1987. Yes. Um, 
I was a teenager when this film came out, so I, I saw it. I didn't see it first run in theaters. I wasn't quite old enough yet, yeah. but I saw it as soon as it came to VHS. This this was the movie that me and my friends went to see. Um, and there is a lot to talk about here. So why don't we do this? Let's let's really quickly for the folks that maybe out there have never seen RoboCop. Yeah. <laughs> uh did take us through take us through the yeah. basic high level summary of RoboCop, and then let's jump in because I've got I've got questions, I've got some definite people yeah. and things that I want to talk about. But let's make it easy yeah. for the group. What is a movie so, like RoboCop about? <laughs> so RoboCop is about an officer named Alex Murphy who is transferred to from a very well to do um, neighborhood in Detroit. It takes place in Detroit in an unnamed era of. The future, and I'm going to get to that because I think that's also important with Verhoeven's movies. The cops have been bought out by OCP, um, Omni Consumer Products, and he's transferred there for the express purpose that they have started transferring cops because cops are dying by the because there's crime is rampant, um, and he gets killed, and then he's brought back by Omni Consumer Products to be RoboCop, and his mind is wiped. He all that is left of him is his ability as a cop. Because he and eventually he finds out that the people, all the crime in the city is being controlled by a guy named Dick Jones. And he finds out that he can't arrest anybody in Omni Consumer Products. So that's part of his programming. And eventually he has to get rid of Dick Jones and one Clarence Boddicker, the greatest villain of the 1980s, <laughs> if you ask me. One of the things that I think is the most successful about RoboCop versus some of these other movies is this yeah. cast is ridiculous. And yes. the cast is ridiculous, not only because they're great, they're not bringing the baggage of kind of this name brand recognition. Yeah. Peter Weller uh, as as Murphy, RoboCop, who I have to, yeah. if, if anything, his entrance, he's coming in looking like he's a session jazz musician, which if you know Peter Weller, yeah. he's a ses- <laughs> he's like, a, his side hobby is he's a jazz musician. He's great uh, at jazz. Let us refer to him properly as Dr. Peter Weller, because Dr. He, Peter is, Weller. he has a PhD in architecture. <laughs> Peter Weller. Uh, yeah. You have Nancy Allen as his kind of yeah. sidekick partner. I mean, if you've seen any De Palma movies, you know how fantastic uh, yeah. Nancy Allen is. You have Ronnie Cox, the shadiest, yeah. slimiest bad guy of yes. all time. And Oily he, as fuck. <laughs> and he would be the greatest villain, except to your point. Holy crap, Kurtwood Smith read from the 70s show, right? So that's where that kind of retroactive, I am now very cognizant as I watch Robocop yeah. that I am watching Red yeah. be so deliciously evil that it kind of it kind of blows your mind. Uh, Ray Wise. Ray Wise yeah. has the widest mouth in Hollywood. Yeah. He's in this film. It's uh, Miguel Ferrer is fantastic. I was going to say, we oh, cannot Miguel forget Ferrer. Miguel Ferrer. You cannot forget Miguel Ferrer. As the gloriously shitty yeah. up-and-coming executive CP. And the, the, there's yeah. this whole side thing. As we talk about kind of like the, um, you know, the consumerism yeah. and the gentrification of kind of uh, yeah. down-and-out areas and yeah. the capitalistic... C- c- kind of Trumpian setup of we're making yeah. all the corporations and, and the businesses make as much money as possible. There's a the subplot inside. Yeah, yeah. There's this subplot on the side that's between Ronnie Cox and Miguel Ferrer as they try to yeah. kind of one up each other. Right. It doesn't really serve the movie except for like, it lays the groundwork for RoboCop coming through and the Ed 209 yeah. program failing, but it's so delicious. It is so right. It is so wonderful. And the thing that that hits me so, Dan, kind of if I'm going to jump into a question, just talk to me about this. Um, 
like I said, this is probably the most trenchant kind of forward yeah. vision film I think of Verhoeven's career. Um, yes. There's so much stuff going on, but at the same time, I think it caters – it's one of those things that caters to an 80s aesthetic that you don't get anymore. Uh, the no. way the performances are kind of finely tuned, the way mm-hmm. the, the I, I so think many it, character actors, so like, many character actors, yeah. so many, ca- so many crew that this movie, yeah. as great as it is with its performances, does not succeed yeah. if you don't have like Phil Tippett and Rob Bottin yeah. doing to this day the best. This is the squib movie to end all yeah. squib movies. I have never oh, seen God. Practical Gunshots. Like I've seen in Robocop. Rob Bottin just goes to town anytime he's on a Bearhoven <laughs> movie with because he's like, I can do because and this will come up in another movie we're gonna talk about because I, I thought about this. Uh Rob Bottin gets to go back to his slasher movie roots. He gets to do body horror, he gets to do all sorts of things with these movies that he does with Verhoeven. I would also argue that Joss Vacano, who is the cinematographer on both Robocop and Total Recall, yeah. He was also a collaborator because I did a little research. Um, he was a collaborator with um, Verhoeven back in Holland because that's the other thing. These movies are this. He was very successful in Holland, and he he actually got his. Some of his films were nominated for Best Foreign Picture before he came to America to make a Jesus movie. You've got the Joss Vacano with all those amazing POV shots, like the one where he wakes up and then everybody's like. Eh! Like that whole montage that takes place in like six months. Yeah. Like it does because they do does such a great job with grounding everything where it's like they give you the timetable at the beginning of the movie where it's like, yeah, we're going to Delta City where they're going to rebuild Detroit in like six months. And then later it's like, yeah, Delta City is going to construction in two months and you've got all these you can just flood the crime in. Um, there's oh, I think the guy's name is Frank Urist, who was all who edited all of Verhoeven's Hollywood movies. He also did Die Hard. So he's got the action. Like he does, he was like a editor. Um, he was an editor with all those action movies in the eighties and nineties. So you have like this perfect storm of like eighties creators that are in this one movie that wasn't even expected to do very well. Like they, I think I was watching something where it's like, yeah, they get the budget at like 12 million. And then Verhoeven, of course, goes over budget. And then it does, does amazingly at the box office. Like it's just this perfect storm of everything. And just like the political commentary, like there's the whole scene where there's the guy, who's the city council guy, that's like a mirror of the Harvey milk, Dan white murdered Harvey milk. And he's like holding City Hall hostage, and of course he says the the amazing line, "I want a car that gets that gets that's super fast and gets shitty gas mileage." <laughs> the uh, six thousand SUX, the six thousand yeah. sucks, which is which is played a couple yeah. of times throughout the movie. Yeah. I For wonder, John, it, like Dan and I come to this obviously through a very uh, American lens. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, you know, all of the, the plays, do, do do they work for you coming to it with a, a slightly yeah. different geographic mindset? I Does mean, the movie work for you? Yeah. Well, obviously. Does the robot I, I, cop work for you, John? Uh, Robert cop works very good for me. Thank you. Robert um, the That's one I remember I wouldn't have seen this at let's say six years old, um, but I would have seen it like yeah. in college probably, yeah. and had a good time with it. No complaints. Um, I think now, ne- like watching it this last week, 
yeah the 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 commentary around the edges uh felt much more noticeable around this time uh but i think it's for it's i don't think like it's it's text so i think i don't i think it's rises above subtext to be text um but i think it is but one of the things that i think i like is how in in I'd say most of the movies we're talking about today, he's able to put just really interesting shit around the margins of uh, what is either, you know, a cop movie or a sci-fi movie or what have you. Um, And, you know, in a way that you can either take it or leave it, whether or not it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, especially in this movie, the, the corporate intrigue uh, between, uh, between Dick Jones and uh, Bob Morton, <laughs> I, I, I just want to call it specifically the scene where um, <laughs> at two oh nine guns the dude uh, in the demonstration. Yes, and and everyone yes. freaks out, but then they're like they're immediately like once the thing is stops, everyone's like right back immediately into corporate speak. I last year at my job, yeah. I literally had to go to a. Uh, a motivate a, a work motivational uh session with a bunch of team leaders and leadership types where one person was is basically like group therapy uh, or mo- like motivational speaker kind of stuff and i had to watch this person who was running the session basically humiliate and emotionally destroy one person he some he picked out of the crowd to like okay now we're going to talk to you about it and i watched this person have an emotional breakdown on zoom in front of the entire company and everyone just had to watch it happen and then go on as if nothing had happened so when i watched this guy getting mowed down i was like that that feeling of everyone just sort of immediately being like all right we just got to keep going yeah <laughs> I, I, another- I felt that in my soul there's another yeah. part there that I, that scene in particular, um, one of the things I, I, I want to point out, and I won't call it a failing of Verhoeven, but uh, his his commentary and his views and themes, they're not buried deep. I mean, they're right there on the surface, which I'm yeah. totally okay with. I, I think my favorite kind of encapsulation of what he's talking about is that exact scene because what winds up happening is, right, the guy comes out and he's like, let's do the demonstration, hold the gun in a threatening manner. Yeah. And he does. He gets blown away, but he gets blown away and he gets thrown on top of Delta City. And then Delta City, which yeah. is this this model, is this pristine white model, is now bathed in viscera and blood. I mean, and if there's yeah. like it doesn't take a, a genius to go, ah, gentrification is going to be paved with bloodshed in this particular movie, right? The corporation is yeah. going to beat down on this city and it's going to be made yeah. with the blood of the others. Uh, but, but that's what I, th- I think makes Verhoeven in at least – I'm going to argue two out of the three films we're going to talk about makes him as interesting as he is, is that he's definitely got an eye of I'm an outsider coming to America. Mm-hmm. I love America. I love its excess, but its excess is also extremely fucked up. Yeah. And I'm going to show that by being slightly exploitive and slightly over the top in everything yeah. that I can get away with, because that's just a reflection of how I am viewing America, particularly America in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, and-, and this this movie does that in spades. Yeah. Supposedly, I don't know how true this was, but supposedly after he got the script from Robocop and there's the famous story that his wife was like, because he didn't want to do it. And his wife's like, you should read this. This is really smart. He just sat down and watched like every Rambo movie there was so that he could process all of the American, all the like synapse and syntax and the vocabulary of American action films because he saw that in the script. 
Also, I do want to mention that Monty Hellman, director of Tulane Blacktop, <laughs> Cockfighter, and everyone's favorite, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, um, did was the second unit director on this movie, and he helped with the action sequences in there. So that's why there's all those oh, great wow. tracks. Yeah. So that's why there's like all the action sequences look so phenomenal because there's all those tracking shots and like he was helping Verhoeven because Verhoeven had never done, really done this kind of action sequence kind of movie yeah let's let's talk about a little bit about uh mr murphy himself uh like what what do what qualities do we like about uh about peter weller as as robocop i'm gonna start i think the way that his movement uh as robocop is single-handedly inspired just Uh, sir I, i i vehemently disagree no conversation about uh, Peter Weller as RoboCop can't. It, it, it is incomplete unless it starts with his luscious, beautiful lips. I mean, it really it is, is at this because point. yeah, okay, <laughs> fair point. When you talk about right, when you talk about like like Batman, for example, right, and how yep. everyone fits in the cowl. The yeah. first time you see RoboCop and you see Peter Weller, he's got that extremely angular, sunken features, yep. but those pursed. Very full, frankly yeah. kissable lips. Uh, it, it, I it, it is so striking. I mean, he's got the movement, he's got the modulated voice and everything. But if you don't have that jawline and that lower face, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, yeah. it it's all for naught. That being said, his movement is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to belittle that that comment because it's probably number two. But how can you not talk about those lips first? How can you not talk about Peter Weller's lips? I mean, it's the only part of him that you see for like a majority of the movie, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> and he expresses so well with those lips, like when he's in the he has the nightmare sequence in the chair, and yeah, he's great. I mean, he's not asked to do a lot. He's asked to be a robot cop. I yeah. mean, you you can say there's not a lot there, but like j- just like he did for uh, just like he's done for Cronenberg when he was in Naked Lunch, just like it, Screamers yeah. is a film that I yeah. love talking about, like, you know, some of the Philip K. Dick adapt- adaptations, one of which we'll be talking about. Uh, he his his voice, his presence and his mannerisms are so distinct. And you can say that about this entire cast. I think that's why yeah. this works as well as it does. I, yeah. I, I think Weller just brings a gravitas just in the way that he looks and talks that that makes the character work better than if i mean i love rucker hauer one day yeah. we, i'll find an excuse to talk about blind fury and how much i love blind fury but Howard uh, or, or schwarzenegger <laughs> like they would not work in this role they, they bring too much of their own yeah thing that i don't think weller has and it, it, it's better because of it. The, the movie is kind of structured in three acts and essentially the three acts are peter weller as alex murphy he dies in the first act because he can't be a human he dies in the second act after he gets hit by the SWAT team because he can't be a robot. And then the third act is him combining the two things because he's Murphy at the end. And he succeeds at the end of the movie because he can be both human and a robot. And that's why RoboCop, that's why he he, he has to be both robot and cop. <laughs> Clever title. Um, half man, he, half robot, all cop, right? That's, that's the yes, tagline? Yeah. But I, it's something I know. It's like because he doesn't succeed as a cop because for whatever reason, he can't succeed. But he also can't succeed as a total as just a total robot. And he does this great, like I said, in that whole middle act of the movie where he's like going to the shop. He goes to the mini mart and he like he when he's the mini, he, he saves them. And it's like, have a nice day. He doesn't comfort them or anything because 
obviously that's not what he's programmed for. Or when he shoots the dude in the dick and he's like, <laughs> I will call a rape crisis center. Have a nice day. <laughs> he just like keeps walking off. Like he, like he, he does this great through line where he he's distinctive as Alex Murphy, the cop. And he's distinctive as the ro- RoboCop as a robot. But when he's like, but when he awakens after he gets killed by the, after he gets attacked by the SWAT team, he just sort of, he, he's not quite human, but he also does this great job where he, he, it's clear he's remembering things, but he doesn't quite know who he is exactly. And he has to define himself at the end. And he just does this great. And I don't know if any other actor could do that and just make him so human at the end, like bring out that humanity so that we cheer for RoboCop when he stabs, uh, Boddicker with the USB drive. Um. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, truly, truly innovative work there. Um, and, and and I gotta say, yeah, like the the the, the movie ends with him being yeah. asked his name, and he says Murphy, and then yeah. immediately, no denouement, no yeah. like wrapping things up. He says, "My name is Murphy." Cue the title RoboCop. Like that is that great Basil Palidoras. When you have Basil Palidoras doing your music, like use that yes. as much as is humanly possible. All right. So why don't we then kind of wrap up our discussion of RoboCop? And okay. uh, as uh, already kind of previewed in our last episode, let's get our ass to Mars and talk about Total Recall. Based off the Philip K. Dick short story, we can remember it for you wholesale. Um, this was the first Verhoeven film I saw first run in the theater. I was finally old enough to go to rated R movies. I was super excited because the thing about Total Recall, and I, I think this is what, to this day, still makes Total Recall fun and interesting to watch, despite its... I'm going to go into it. Many, many flaws that I I see is that um, Verhoeven is great at finding these little ideas and these little tags that are little throwaway pieces, but especially to an audience in 1990 who was not raised on CGI and all this amazing, like you could basically do anything now. The shit in Total Recall, and this was prominently displayed in the trailer, when the woman is changing her nail polish using basically like a light pen. That still blows me away to this day. I still watch that scene and I'm like, that is a throwaway moment that paints an entire world for you in this movie. And that's what Total Recall did for us in 1990. We saw shit we had never seen before. We saw a hologram wristwatch that if you give two seconds of thought makes no sense and no way could ever possibly fool anybody. But in 1990, I mean, that shit was not going on. And to tie it to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was probably at that time the biggest action star in the world. I mean, this was this was guaranteed to be a bona fide hit. 48 to 80 million dollar budget, 261 million at the box office in 1990. You've got huge names here. You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger. You've got what was for me the first appearance and the first time I took notice of Sharon Stone, who we'll be talking about quite a bit in the next movie. Um, you've got Ronnie Cox again. Uh, you don't have Clarence Boddicker, but you got um, <laughs> Michael Kermit Smith, Ironside. but you got Michael Ironside. I have some things to say about Michael Ironside in this movie. <laughs> well, he's a poor man's, he's a a poor man's Kurtwood Smith in, yeah. in this movie. He tries <laughs> and he fails to be Kurtwood Smith. You have Rachel Titicon. Um, yeah. You have an army of mutants 
that yep. are basically not used in a particularly good way in the year of our Lord 2022. Um, no. But again, this is 1990 and this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. Um, so what's it about? Essentially, this is about Douglas Quaid, a uh, huge jacked construction worker who somehow is married to Sharon Stone and lives in this beautiful apartment building. Uh, but he dreams of going to Mars. He dreams about it all the time and he dreams of this sleazy yet demure athletic brunette uh, that is constantly in his dreams. Yes, I just saw this movie a couple days ago, so I remember all of it. Um, uh, and uh, so there is a company called Recall, 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 that will, instead of you spending the money to go on an actual vacation, they will implant memories of a vacation in your head so it's like you were actually there. So against the wishes of his wife and his co-workers, he goes to Recall, where he takes a special ego trip package that makes him a secret agent aliens and saving the world from a vast conspiracy um, and something goes wrong. So the movie kind of, I want to say plays with the concept, but it really doesn't play with the concept at all, even though it tries to let you think it does. Um, as he actually gets into real life, what he had signed up for as just a recall memory. So he goes to Mars. There are conspiracies. Ronnie Cox plays a jackass, uh, big corporate bigwig who wants to, you know, charge people for air and sell turbinium, which is almost as bad as unobtainium. If we're talking about imaginary minerals from James Cameron, um, all that, but I, watching it now, 30 years yeah. later, uh, it's, there's some stuff that I love. There's some stuff, man, I really don't like. And probably biggest of all, and, and, and Dan, John, let me ask you this now that we've kind of dove deep into Verhoeven. I think the biggest problem here is Schwarzenegger, not because it's a short, not because of him himself, but when you sign up to do a Schwarzenegger movie, the Schwarzenegger tropes take over, I think, a lot of what you're trying to do. So I, I think you still see a lot of what Verhoeven, you know, wants yeah. to rail against. You still see kind of the corporate structure and, and, you know, big guy versus the little guy, the common people, uh, the, the misfits against, you know, the beautiful, I, I, there is a thing here about the ugly people versus the pretty people. <laughs> so identify with that however you want. But all of that has to take a backseat to Schwarzenegger doing every single catchphrase he possibly can in this movie and looking amazing every single time and shoehorning in a romance that makes literally no sense in the movie. And I think watching it now, having watched Robocop before and seeing kind of unadulterated Verhoeven play in the fields of science fiction and have a blast here. He's now beholden to, well, it's Schwarzenegger and Schwarzenegger's always going to look good. He's always going to do his thing. So you got to make sure that you get that in there. Um, yeah. You know, it gets a little diluted in there, but I still think there's a lot to love. So where does this sit now? I'm assuming all you guys have seen this before. You've probably yeah. seen it years ago. So you're coming to it now. How has yeah. it changed for you coming into it now? basically well for me in comparison with i will be honest of the three movies that we watched and we were gonna watch this was the one i was least looking forward to because one it's the one i've seen on a bazillion times compared to the other two because it was on cable all the time yeah. it was like an app it's the one that's easy the most of verhoeven's films is the most easily edited it down so you can watch it on tv and something that i would because we're not talking about starship troopers um 
of his three of all of his science fiction films, even including Hollow Man, um, his Verhoeven science fiction films. This is the outlier for me because the other science fiction films he did in Hollywood feel like parables. It's sci-fi as parable or social commentary versus Total Recall feels like sci-fi as futurism. This is where we could be. These are things like sort of wish fulfillments of what the future could be like for us. We'll discover aliens. We'll colonize all sorts of planets. You know, we'll go to these places. And it's, I'm with you, Chris. Uh, Schwarzenegger is kind of wildly miscast, but this movie wouldn't have been made without him. Right. Um, I think the script and what kills me is the script is by Ronald Shusett and Dan O'Bannon who yeah. did Alien and I I think we had talked a little bit about because we do have Cronenberg here um, <laughs> Cronenberg was originally going to direct Total Recall um, he had started doing all the design works like there was a like eight million dollars in pre-production was spent by Dino De Laurentiis to make Total Recall Cronenberg was going to make it and then as they were doing it Shusett who was the big one behind this was like, no, 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 no. I want to do Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars. And Phil- and Cronenberg's like, but I want to make a Philip K. Dick movie. And they're like, oh, no, you're not a right fit for what we want to do. And uh, it really is Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars. Um, and I will be honest, of the three movies where Cronenberg could have directed it, I wish he had made Total Recall. I would want, that's the movie I want to see. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a good there's a good side story there because I know Dan O'Bannon has a good long relationship with Cronenberg as well, and I don't remember where I was reading this, but Dan O'Bannon was not particularly happy with Total Recall either. Mm-hmm. Um, and in his vision, this movie ends very differently, and it ends much more like a Cronenberg film, where mm-hmm. essentially, I mean, we're total spoilers here, but Schwarzenegger saves the day, and basically, yeah. the corporation is charging people for air, and they yeah. found an alien generator that could potentially bring yeah. oxygen and atmosphere to Mars, although who says that the original Martians needed oxygen for air, but let that go. Um, You know, they were going to turn that on, but if they turn it on, it kills all the turbinium and then their capitalistic kind of mining business is out the window. And at the end, there's this huge alien generator with a big, huge alien handprint and Quaid, who may have been Hauser, who may have been a double agent, may have been a triple agent. He activates the generator. Oxygen comes. Everybody saved. Great story. In the original script from what I read from O'Bannon, um, he was not – it wasn't about Mind Eraser. He was a clone created by aliens. And when he hits that generator, it doesn't create the atmosphere. It gives him back all of his memories and he realizes that he is now the alien because he was created by the aliens. He's like the last remnants of the Martian originated aliens. And he's now going to play God. And it ends with the line of now I get to play God. And that's how the movie ended. And that is a mind fuck of an ending. <laughs> and that's more. Have either of you read the original or know yeah. the original story? Yeah, because the original story ends with them like, oh, there's a third personality here and you weren't supposed to erase the other two. And now we're all fucked. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't show my Verhoeven books, but I can show all of my original copies of the Philip K. Dick complete short story collection <laughs> that I bought in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> After seeing Total Recall, most likely. <laughs> I, I just want to stay uh, for a minute here, just because we're talking about the casting of Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. and his yeah. both importance and detriment to the film. Yeah. I think that for for one thing, I like what I like about Schwarzenegger in this movie is that, or or rather, I guess I'll note it, and we can decide whether we like it or not. Is how 
the presence of Schwarzenegger, especially when he has his shirt off, kind of throws off the balance of is this real or is this a dream? Because 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 again, the movie, I think, is meant to have you ask the question, is this whole thing just a product of the uh, of the dream vacation that he signed up for? Um, but for that to be true, yeah. he, that would mean that uh that would mean that Schwarzenegger has to be a normal human being. And he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He can't yeah. be a normal human being because he's Arnold fucking Schwarzenegger. Even if he's playing the 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 the, the dopey version of himself, yeah. uh, he still looks like that. Yeah. He still does those things. He's married to Sharon Goddamn Stone, who I will we'll talk about this more when it's yeah. in, in, in the next movie absolutely walks like circles around him in yeah. her brief screen time. But it I is think wild. Too, like, th- this, yeah. it, it, th- this is my biggest problem with the movie. My biggest problem with the movie is not Schwarzenegger. It, it, he's fine. And I actually, yeah. I like Schwarzenegger. I've seen him in a bunch of things and I enjoy him. I do think he's miscast, but taken as a Schwarzenegger movie, this is a lot of fun. The problem is, is they can't, the, the the whole having your cake and eating it too. If you yep. want this to be a question as is it real or is it a dream, then you can't open your goddamn movie with him dreaming of Rachel Titicon yeah. on Mars. Yeah. And then it completely I would also, invalidates everything as to whether or not it's a dream or not. It's just, it also, is what it is. Yeah. I would also argue that there's these two shots. I noticed this rewatch. I think I've seen the, I've noticed them as I've gotten older watching this movie and there's the whole argument. Is it a dream or not? But there's two shots in the movie. One is of Sharon Stone and one of them is of his buddy at the construction site. And they both like the camera just stays on them maybe a little too long. And it's like, he's told, this is totally not a dream. Like it, like he's, he's obviously the secret agent. He's been this the whole time. Yeah. They're, they're pushing him away from recall. It's, it's when, and again, it's a great scene Verhoeven, if nothing else, he knows how to shoot a fucking movie. He knows how to make it look good. So Mm -hmm. the first time you see Schwarzenegger at work and he's got a jackhammer and it's literally just, his muscles are going everywhere and he's talking to his buddy about, Hey, have you heard of recall? And it it does that kind of like, it holds on. He's like, you don't want to go there. Some guy fucking got his mind all fucking, whatever it is. Like he got a lobotomy or something like that. And, uh, that guy is hilarious. <laughs> that kind of in the future, the you still got the big kind of Mookie guys. Are like, hey, this guy's yeah. a Momo over here. Um, yeah. it, it, it it completely invalidates any ambiguity that mm. tries to get yeah. injected at the end of the film, and that frustrates me to no end. Yeah. I will say that, and we're talking about, we talked about Michael Ironside doing a poor man's Clarence Boddicker, but I gotta say one of my favorite moments in the movie is when uh, Ironside's buddy uh, bugs him about Sharon Stone uh, getting bagged by uh, Schwarzenegger, and he's like, what, you think she likes it? And he just gets so pissed off. Like, to to me, him as shitty Boddicker actually works in his favor, because he's, he's this petulant little shit. But again, like if you can buy, like if, 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 if you can't, if, if I can't buy that Schwarzenegger, a lowly construction worker is married to Sharon Stone, there's no way that I buy that Michael Ironside is married to Sharon Stone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that has to, I mean, no offense to Michael Ironside because he's great, but like, yeah, that, that, that's, that must have been an interesting movie exper- filming experience for him where he's like, I'm Sharon Stone's secret boyfriend, but I can't. Big, she's banging Arnold Schwarzenegger for her job, and I have to be cool with it. 
I did like um, when he like first gets injured and he gets back from killing all those guys. And there's one, I will say, I did love the shot that's like overhead and like all the blood's on the ground as he's trying yes. to get away. That's such a great shot. But uh, she's like, I have to call the doctor. And Michael Ironside came up. And last night as I'm watching, it's like, Dr. Daryl Revok. That's who she's calling. <laughs> is, that, is, that who, is that who comes up? No, it's, yeah, it's Michael Ironside, oh. but she said she has to call the doctor, and all I can think oh, is Dr. Daryl Revok. Okay. I, for some reason, I thought the name came up, and I'm like, now that's yeah, a no. crazy callback to a Cronenberg film. <laughs> but uh, it, I do think it's Verhoeven's least personal, or le- the one he had the least input into with making a Hollywood film, but so much of it feels like a parody of what this kind of Hollywood action film is, and it's like, okay, I'm going to do this because apparently after RoboCop, he's like, I don't want to do big budget, like sci-fi action movies with a bunch of effects again. And what does he do? He does a big budget sci-fi action movie with a bunch of effects again, but it feels like so much of a parody of what those kind of movies are, or it's like, okay, well, this is what you think a Hollywood movie should be. You have a big action star, you have big action sequences. There's so much product place. This is like the most product placement I've seen in a Verhoeven movie. Like yeah. I was laughing that the, the red light district with all the mutant prostitutes has like a still. sharper image and a Jack in the box <laughs> next to the brothel. <laughs> but, but here's the weird thing though. So yeah. like, again, yeah. Having seen this first run, this yeah. th- at the time this was not a parody. This like we yeah. had never seen shit like this before, and it 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 is. It's almost like like I think you kind of nailed it, Dan, when you said like, all right, you want me to do a sci-fi action film? This is what I think a sci-fi action film should actually yeah. be, and it blew our minds. And and, and, yeah. and again, once again, I I don't think we can not talk about this. If there's an MVP of this movie again, it's Rob Boutin. Yeah. Who actually is in all three of our movies. I didn't realize he did the the effects for the third movie we're going to talk about as well, which is much more subtle. But here, holy shit. Yeah. I would say much more sparse, but not more subtle. <laughs> not, well, no. Maybe not more subtle. But I mean, if you didn't know who Rob Boutin was and you saw the thing and then you see in Total Recall how the heads are yeah. getting ready to explode. And yeah. You're like, oh, it's the guy who did the effects for the thing. The effects in this, the makeup in this is unbelievable. Even though one of the mutants basically just has a clitoris and a vagina on his head. Which I tried to suggest that to my wife and without actually saying it. And she was like, what does that, what does that mutant's face look like to you? And she was like, she didn't, she was just like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm just like, okay, fine. I'm not going to say it. If you're not, not going to mention it, I'm and not going to say it. that's a thing where it's like, it's yeah. so over the top and ridiculous, yeah. but that's like, that's for Hovind. And I, yeah. I, I find it hilarious that he gets that in the movie. But then when we talk about the next movie, he gets in trouble for almost the same thing when it's real, as opposed yeah. to for four square on someone's face in close up. The the fucking the fucking uh, face like explodey shit uh, is is legit. Uh, like I am legit uncomfortable. Like it is uh, in at, at But I think the only time where it actually falls apart for me is at the, at the is at the very end with um uh with Schwarzenegger and his uh, his girlfriend almost yeah. go because it just keeps yeah. like because because yeah. when when the air comes in and their faces just go back to normal yeah. like if if they had had it maybe for like half a second of them starting to do it yeah. and then it stuff happens and then you come back eventually to them you'd be like oh, okay it was fine but they their 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 heads are inflating for <laughs> yeah. a long time they should not their 
faces yeah. should not go back to being normal when the air comes in. They're as fucked well, up as Ronnie Cox's. Well, John, yeah. look, if, if, if you know any science at all, you know how elastic the head can be. There is capable of large inflation <laughs> and deflation yeah. at any time when atmospheric conditions change. I mean, of Muscles, course. you know. <laughs> I mean, I have been watching The Expanse, which actually has a lot to do with uh, ancient alien technology and uh, and Mars uh, and its tense relationship with Earth. So, you know, uh, uh, also grew up on Babylon 5, where there was also Martian independent subplots running through there as well. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a sucker for that kind of uh, uh, very rich storytelling that Paul Verhoeven <laughs> is very clearly invested in. I do like, though. So, I mean, like talking about some of the makeup a little bit more. And, yeah. and and kind of Verhoeven's themes. I mean, there is a very like he's very explicit in that. Like, hey, all these freaks and all these mutants. That's because they didn't get enough air because they were poor and they couldn't buy yep. the oxygen. And, and I like something how he does I did, that. Something I didn't bring up, and this is something uh, I'll get to in one of my suggestions. Um, his because he's very into realism. Like RoboCop has that one throwaway scene, and I think it makes the whole movie uh, where they have the baby food dispenser of how he eats. And Verhoeven is, it's like he think because he's a math and science, like he has degrees of math and science. So he he's very into the physics of how these places and how these things would actually work. And that's why his effects look so great, because it's like they're plausible on yeah. some level. Um, so like the mutants, I think that's a great detail, which was actually left over from the Cronenberg version. But I think he noticed it and he's like, OK, that would that might be plausible. You know, people would be affected by the way they're um, would be affected by the way they live in these domes. And it also goes back again, goes back into the rich people, like how corporations are controlling people and like meeting out resources to them as, you know, as they do, as they would. Yeah. He, he doesn't. Um, and it's something that you see time and time again. And it's something where, it, especially in this movie, you can talk about it with Nancy Allen as, as well. He, yeah. his best roles oftentimes go to the women. Uh, like yeah. he doesn't belittle them. They're not just kind of these side pieces. Yeah. Rachel Titicon sort feels like she yeah. is a little bit, but Sharon Stone does not. Like one of the things that I'll, I'll, I'll fight till my dying breath is she is a re ridiculous presence in this movie you cannot take your eyes yeah. off her she is galvanizing a presence yeah. in this movie and you see where like especially when we talk about the next movie because i've got things to say there but uh, oh, uh she is phenomenal in this this movie the way that she plays against him she is a bigger presence than schwarzenegger which is insane when you think about this is a schwarzenegger movie ostensibly she's like the most three-dimensional character in a two-dimensional world and he like, does that with the with the mutants and the psychics too yeah. I, I mean like all of them have these little quirks and peccadillos that make them people except for benny benny is kind of there's a whole yeah. weird thing with benny there and yeah. he's i get yeah. his his purpose as a plot device to be the double cross and and, and stuff like that yeah. but like everyone there's else, a lot of subtext that's not good with Benny. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 Benny is problematic. Uh, yeah. And look, this is not something we'll get into, but Verhoeven and not a lot of black people in Verhoeven films, <laughs> at least in Don't, this area. Yeah. And when they are, 
It's a little. I would weird. argue the cop, the chief in the police station, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, but it, and he, I mean, if if anyone yeah. kind of played the stereotype of the disgruntled yeah. police chief, it was yeah. that guy, right? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> y- y- look, so there's stuff we yeah. can talk about. But on the whole, I love that he puts a focus on the marginalized characters. That's not just mm-hmm. the people yeah. in peril. You, g- he gives them a little bit more to really bring them to life. I think that's probably a uh, a good uh, a good place for us to sort of uh, wrap up our total recall and uh, keep the Sharon Stone conversation going as we talk about Basic Instinct. So, if we are talking about movies that star Sharon Stone, the nature of whose reality is perhaps obscured in the in the slightest, if not a lot, um, our next movie is Basic Instinct, the follow-up uh, to Total Recall. Um, I picked this movie because, one, I had never seen it. Uh, I thought that... And um, a few months ago, uh, we had done Body Heat uh, for this podcast, a movie that we were kind of blown away by enough to put on our wall of fame. And I wondered how by our next erotic thriller uh, might potentially fare in comparison to that. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's why I wanted to go with this one. Uh, the only thing I knew about it was the, the infamously referenced in all kinds of places shot of, of course, Sharon Stone on crossing her legs while not wearing underwear. But, uh, I think that where I, I mean, <laughs> this is Paul Verhoeven. So everything yeah. is exaggerated to the point yeah. of silliness. And my first thought, which is not necessarily a complaint, but since that's where my head was at, was I don't find this to be nearly as titillating as Body Heat. Um, it is, she's not like, obviously, <laughs> there are attractive people in this movie and they have sex, but I don't feel as like sweaty and hot and like, around the collar in in watching basic instinct as I do in body heat, because everything is just so arch and that I mean, arched like metaphorically and physically in in Sharon Stone's case. Well, there's a huge reason for that, John. And I'm going to, I'm going to just say this and then take a step back. The huge difference there is because body heat was written by an incredible writer (laughs) and basic instinct was written by Joe Esterhaus. (laughs) I was hoping we were going to bring him up. Uh, He's awful. And that is the, I think that is a lot of why I really do not like this movie. Um, but I'm going to leave it there and let you, uh, <laughs> summarize the plot of what Basic Instinct is about before I start to rail against it too much. <laughs> the premise of Basic Instinct, because part of this problem I have with the movie is being able to actually describe the plot. But basically, the, the basic idea <laughs> is that, uh, uh, Michael Douglas is a detective, uh, possibly the worst cop in all of existence uh and he has to investigate the murder of a wealthy rock star um who is stabbed to death while having sex uh well no he's stabbed to death with an ice pick while having sex he was not having sex with an ice pick and died sorry just to clarify um and 
in the process of that investigation comes into the orbit of uh, Catherine Trammell, played by Sharon Stone, who is a writer and is immediately becomes the sort of center around which everything in the film orbits. Yes, and the various murder investigations that happen around there. Um, we can obviously talk about the specific mechanics of who's related to what and how it all puts together. Um <clears throat> What I think I might my, my the thing that I think is strongest about this movie is how Sharon Stone completely has everyone in this movie wrapped around her finger. And I don't just mean the people that she fucks. I mean, like she taunts she at every moment she taunts the police officers with having had done the crime without like she she basically invites them all to be like, yeah. Come after me, you assholes! Like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna pull anything on me. The, the in a in a mystery, usually there's like, you know, something to like someone's playing coy or someone is trying to obscure the fact or whatever. And she's basically from minute one saying, "Come at me, bro!" Like the entire movie. And I, I for me, that is probably the thing I like the most about it is just how fuck you fight me, uh, Sharon Stone is about the whole movie chris i mean like i know you don't like this movie but as a response to sharon's like how do you like sharon stone in this movie sharon stone is phenomenal in this movie and she is the okay, reason we can to agree watch on this movie yep. uh she is cold and calculated she is the thing that works in this movie um i i don't think from a when i say that i i, I have to be clear i don't think this plot works at all um i think this oh, no. ending is a bag of garbage but I don't think that's Sharon Stone's fault. I think Sharon Stone does everything that she is asked to do, and she takes it to a thousand. I think there is a way to kind of overact and amplify yourself to kind of seem larger than life. I think she takes the opposite approach and achieves the same effect. She is so cool and calculated. She is constantly a hundred steps ahead of everybody else, the entire movie. And that is phenomenal. Um, in what I would like to call the very, very, very poor person's body heat. Uh, you know, you, you realize that she is screwing with them the entire time. She is the person I kind of root for in this movie because every man in this movie is a despicable piece of shit that I care nothing about. And there's a great article. There's actually a great, um, if you have Netflix and you haven't seen David Fincher's film anthology, Voix. Um, one of my favorite writers of film, Drew McQueeny, has uh, an episode on that on that series where he talks about whether you have to like a character, and he uses um, he uses Lawrence of Arabia as his kind of litmus test to kind of d describe that. I don't have to like a character, but I am so not engaged by anything Michael Douglas does in this movie that it completely derails everything for me. He is a disgusting dick of a human being who has no redeeming features and i don't care one whit that he's trying to solve a murder that he literally has no stake in whatsoever and that's the problem with this movie and in, in it for a nutshell i didn't mean to go into this i just meant to say i love sharon stone in it but the difference between this movie and body heat is that we we've talked about how much we love that movie and we talked about how much we love William Hurt because he is the prime. He's the quintessential himbo. He is this beautiful blonde guy who's got it all together and you understand his motivation and you understand what he's trying to do. So when Kathleen Turner screws him at the end, it is brilliant. 
Michael Douglas is a dick and he has a crime that no one actually fucking cares about. He doesn't care about it. So why should I care as to whether or not he wants to solve it? Uh, that being said, Sharon Stone, amazing in this movie. Uh, everything that she got as far as, you know, fame afterwards, totally deserved because she knocks it out of the park in this movie. Better than the cheap imitation that she tried to do later, which I think fucking Esther House also wrote, that stupid Sliver movie, which is based on the Iron Levin novel with uh, Billy uh, Billy Baldwin. Uh, oh, man, that's a terrible movie, too. I mean, she's okay in it, but it's a terrible movie. Here she is. She is lightning in a bottle. Uh, she is magnificent. She is glorious. And I love her to death in this movie. I just wish she was in a better movie. <laughs> Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> before we, before we toss over to Dan, because Dan, you had said you Dan had some thoughts totally on it too. Dan feels totally differently. I, I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate this I, movie. I so, many, so please uh, convince me how that I'm wrong, because I'm willing to be convinced. Okay. I have I have reasons. Um, so I this was only the second time I've ever seen this movie. Um, I threw it on maybe a year or two ago um, because it was on Stars. I'm like, okay, it's Verhoeven. I'll watch anything Verhoeven does because it's never going to be boring. And this is a far from boring movie. 100% um, agree. Not a boring movie. <laughs> um, and I was really, again, struck by just how incredible Sharon Stone is in this movie. Uh, the Jan de Bont cinematography is in, like, everything looks gorgeous in this Amazing. film. Amazing. Like, yeah, the interrogation sequence with all those crisscrossing, like, shadows like the smoke, everything just looks gorgeous. Um, so, like I said, I watched this and was just blown away by just how, one, it skirts this line between being incredibly fashionable. Everything looks great. It looks like it's a architect, like a movie film for architectural digest. All the backgrounds in California looks fantastic. And it's incredibly sleazy. Like, the opening credits when I rewatched it and I saw the special makeup effects by Rob Bottin. I'm like, yes. Rob Bottin did makeup effects? And then the ice pick through the eye is like, ah, Rob Bottin did the makeup effects for this movie. <laughs> Literally the first thing you see in this movie once the credits like unblur themselves yeah. at the end is the is is crazy inhuman sex followed yeah. by the most vicious ice pick stabbing that uh has ever been committed to film but it john is, certainly that's how that's how you know you're what like you're, uh, for hoven announcing himself <laughs> yes. as like yeah fuckers here i am but john certainly if cinema has taught us anything uh, that's how everybody has sex right i mean i just assume and I, I, bear in mind, I, I do have a child, but I just assume that's how sex happens. I know when I took health class, that's what they showed us happens is that th there's there's diving and swirling and ropes and ice picks. Don't, and that's how you make a baby. Don't forget your mirrors, your Hermes scarves. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Hermes scarves. I will forever I have that in my brain now. <laughs> that's an expensive scarf. <laughs> yeah, at at, uh, at health classes they hand out condoms and ice picks <laughs> <laughs> and ceiling mirrors <laughs> and ceiling mirrors because yeah. if you can't see and yourself, a shit ton it of doesn't cocaine. really count. But something that struck me because I've been like I spent I've spent most of the last year just watching horror movies. Um, was this felt like the Paul Verhoeven's equivalent of a slasher movie because you have the killer with the one weapon, but it's like it's all men that die because it's like a reverse slasher movie where you have a woman killing a bunch of men with a particular weapon. Um, I almost wanted to call it a giallo, but there's no gloves. There's no, yeah. no oh, I wish this were a giallo. Yeah. Like God, a Paul Verhoeven giallo. Um, 
when I watched this and I was just struck by how amazing it was the first time I saw it, I was really struck by just how impotent Michael Douglas is throughout this whole movie. Like he thinks he's in control. And I feel like him going after this crime is not about solving the crime. This whole movie is about power games and Michael Douglas has to have thinks he's in control the whole time. And the only time he's ever in control is that really uncomfortable rape scene between him and Gene Triplehorn. Yeah. And thank you for calling it what it clearly is because that is a horrible sequence. Yeah. And (laughs) it's the only time he's ever in control on this movie. And then the whole rest of the movie, Sharon Stone has him wrapped around her finger and it's basically her just the whole movie is her exerting control over everyone. And I just found that, especially since Michael Douglas had just come off a string of movies where he was like, oh, I'm just a victim. And I'm, you know, like Fatal Attraction, also written by Joe Esterhouse. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But he had been in that whole string of movies where he was like this iconic 80s man. And here he is in in the night, starting the 90s off as this really pathetic cop that just Mm. thinks he's like, I've beaten my addictions. I, you know. He shot two tourists. We're never given why he shoots the two tourists. Like they never go into what. Well, it, 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 it seems yeah. like, right. He was hopped up on cocaine undercover <laughs> and was doing a drug deal and shot these tourists on accident. But, yeah. but I think like even yeah. there and we can, I'm not a huge fan of fatal attraction either. Yeah. And I think Esther house has this thing where he's yeah. like, you, you know, oh, the poor man, he like, yeah. you clearly got yourself into this situation. Um, yeah. but I think, the the problem I have here with basic instinct is just like I have there's I I don't I just don't care about Michael Douglas like he yes he 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 has this one moment of control in that horrific scene and then everything yeah. is pulled away from him like he mm-hmm. starts to drink again he starts to smoke and I love that she is the person pulling yeah. all the strings but I don't care that he's drinking and smoking again. Like there's no downfall where I feel like, Oh shit, man, look at what happened to you, Michael Douglas, because you were a dick in the beginning and you're a dick now. So I, yeah. I lose he it there. Been. Yeah. And, and the weird, the weird cowboy partner. I, I don't know. Look, I like him. This movie, I like him. I like him, but like look, this movie looks gorgeous. Uh, yeah. Jan de Bont does a great job. Um, Jerry, Gold, I think Jerry Goldsmith's doing the score. Yeah. Great mm-hmm. score. Uh, there he, are didn't two- he also do Total Recall? Yes. Yes, he did. There are two car chases in this movie that are great. And I keep yeah. laughing that like he's keeping up in like his Chevy sedan yeah. against a Lotus. And, but like, I don't care. Those are ridiculously tense moments, especially when they're yeah. on like the canyon sides. And mm-hmm. he's fantastic. But man, I just don't care about the rest of the movie. It looks great. It's beautiful from a fashion perspective. Everything looks yeah. incredible. But yeah, the, the in the way that a lot of the like machinations of the alien Mars resistance colonization capitalism yeah. stuff just sort of like falls by the wayside. Here, the actual plot stuff feels just yeah. not so much. It almost feels similarly forgotten where it's like, eh, it's it's kind of a it's yeah. kind of a messy jumbled up. So that's my thing. other critique, yeah. too. Right. So the, the 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 sexuality, you know, the amping up of the yeah. sexuality aside, I don't see a lot of Verhoeven here. I don't see a lot. I, I personally don't see the themes coming to play. And I don't know if it's because 
Esther House and and the script were taking precedence. But like we talked about in Total Recall, how kind of, kind of the marginalized society and how he gives yeah. them a little bit of a voice, even though they play in service to the Schwarzenegger plot. Here, I, I, is the marginalized society just Gene Triplehorn's gay character? Because she is not treated with the same modicum of respect that the mutants are treated in Total Recall. So I have a hard time finding where the Verhoeven themes come into play in this movie. <laughs> so for me, I think it's the fact that I think it's just the queer people in general in this film because the most sympathy Sharon Stone has for any character in this movie is when her is uh, girlfriend dies. And like, I feel like that's, I know she's a psychopath and I know she's manipulating people, but I feel it's, it's a genuine moment where she is just distraught that she drove, literally drove this person to uh, try to kill Michael Douglas. Um, and all of these moments, like, Jean Triplehorn is totally a victim in this movie. Like she dresses like she's been traumatized. Like she's got all that baggy clothing. And it's clear that she's a victim of both Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone's characters. Like she spent her whole life just being terrorized by these two awful people. And I feel like just everyone that's a queer person in this movie just kind of gets screwed over by totally. like heteronormative individuals. Like Sharon Stone, every time Michael Douglas, like, let's have kids and just settle down and have a normal life. And Sharon Stone just, there's all these shots of her just going like, I love that. Yeah. She says it twice. She's like, yeah, I'm not into that. Yeah. He, he's a, Michael Douglas is a coked up murderous cop. Why the fuck does he think he wants to have settle down and have kids with Sharon Stone? So that is, like, he, but that's the point in the movie where you like, I mean, before when he's bragging to Roxy about how she's the fuck of the century, and then later, uh, uh, Sharon Stone was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's like the first real, like, putting him in his place. But then when he's later at the end of the movie is like, we should settle down and have kids. I'm just like, this guy is completely lost it. Yeah. He is, yeah. he is, he, he has been put yeah. in his place. Yeah. So whether or not she, like, cause at the last shot when he, she like reaches for the ice pick and then decides not to, it doesn't matter that she does, does or doesn't yeah. kill him because he's just gone now. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, he doesn't not, he, he put him in a shelf. He is done. Yeah. So I got to ask a question about that. So help me. Cause this may change my opinion somewhat. Okay. Um, pure plot mechanics now at, at, yeah. at, at, at this point. Because I, I hate the ending, because I, I, but maybe it's because I'm not understanding. So part of what I took from the movie from a pure plot perspective is that, um, I think Roxy at first was just kind of an accidental. Roxy went crazy because she was seeing too much and she was too much in love with, um, yeah, with uh, Catherine, right? Just like, um, just like Jean Triplehorn's character. So, she, so she dies. She's not involved. She didn't kill anybody. She just yeah. did what what she did. Did Jean Triplehorn did was she actually the murderer the whole time? And that's I will say that's the one. It's like I feel like part of me I watched because I read after watching it last night, and I'm like the whole time I'm like, oh yeah, it's Jean Triplehorn. She killed everybody. She hates everyone. Like it makes the most sense, but at the same time, like Sharon Stone could have killed Nilsson the. Uh, I did have a moment where I'm like, oh, it's the bad guy from Lord of Illusions. Um, <laughs> um, when he showed up, but uh, like she could have shot him at any point and it would be easy to frame 
uh, Michael Douglas. Like, obviously, the opening scene of the movie is meant to, like, obscure whether or not she killed the rock star. And, like, the conversation they have at the beach, she could have, Catherine Trammell could have, like, motivated. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally into him. And, like, I don't want to see you again. And, like, this was just a thing. Like, she does to Michael Douglas later at the end of the movie. So that's where I was going with. Yeah. I thought that she was such a master manipulator. Yeah. That she was manipulating everyone. So yeah. to and so and, and and then at the end, maybe she is the killer, and yeah. she sets up Gene Triplehorn to be you know to take the fall. First, she's trying to get someone else to take the fall. That doesn't work out. Roxy yeah. dies, and th- there was a part of me that was like maybe Roxy was going to take the fall, but then Roxy goes crazy, and then Roxy dies. So yeah. now she's trying to set up another way to make it all work. So maybe she sets up. So either Gene Triplehorn killed everybody. Yeah. Or Catherine killed everybody and framed it on Gene Triplehorn because Gene, uh, it's uh, Beth, right? Yep. Uh, Dr. Garner, Beth, yeah. Beth Garner, Lisa Hoberman. Uh, so she was, obs- we, we already established that she's obsessed with Catherine throughout all of yeah. college. And there's the thing with the, with right. the counselor. So my thought was originally was that she's using that obsession, you know, to do this frame so yeah. she can get away with it, which, okay. So if that's the case at the end, She's clearly got away with it. Every other conceivable suspect is now dead and you have Mm -hmm. your prime suspect dead as well. So if she kills Michael Douglas, (laughs) which is what they imply at the end, it's like, it's weird too. It doesn't just pan down. It fades to black and then it pops back up. And it comes back. That's really (laughs) weird, which is like, I'm fine with that weird Verhoeven touch. But then if you're saying that she's going to kill him, she's fucking screwed because there's literally no one else left that she can pin it on. So it's either that or she's killed everybody. And that's just now she's she's like the old lady. Uh, I can't remember her her name. She's okay. like all these other people that yeah. are murderers. She's got that taste and can't stop. And maybe right. it's that. And because this movie just kind of whimpers out on what that plot through line is, that frustrates me more than anything else. Yeah. And I think and Sharon the, Stone deserves better. And I will. Yeah, the plot, dump, the expo dump at the end where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We found all this. It's like, it's yeah. not very it's very confusing. And it seems so much like a setup, like, oh, we found her yeah. books in the kitchen. Yeah. Like, dude, no one's putting books. I don't care who you are. No one's putting books in the yeah. cutlery drawer. That's weird. <laughs> I I definitely read it as uh, as Sharon Stone, psycho mastermind yeah. all the way through. Like and, and, and her psycho mastermind, meaning she also was the killer. No, like she she killed the yeah. rock star. She yeah. set up and like with uh, with everyone in her life yeah. manipulates like or she killed her parents or whatever. But then she like oh she also like manipulates people into doing what she wants. So whether or not she kills them, she is the ultimate first cause of yeah. people dying. Okay. Um, and then the the ending moment is sort of like a maybe I'll kill you, maybe I won't. I'm not going to today because yeah. there's fucking to be had. Uh, There's fucking to be had. And I, I want to have. 
And you, because you said Lisa Hoberman, I do want to say my, aside from the plot making no sense, I do want to say my biggest problem with the movie is that they dedicate serious screen time to a fucking typo. Uh, when he goes and asks about Lisa right. Oberman, and then it has to go back and be like, it's with an H. I was it's like, you Oberman. are spending actual serious screen time right. on a fucking typo. That's what another the fuck thing. is wrong with this you? This movie is too long. There's no reason this movie should be over two hours. That's yeah. crazy. So much shit we could look. I know you love the cowboy, and I I know like, the weird thing uh, is yes, Gus, I, I his do. partner, he keeps calling him cowboy throughout the whole first half of the movie. I'm like, why do they call him cowboy? And then apparently in San Francisco, there's this one bar that's peopled <laughs> entirely by cowboys, and he's dressed like a cowboy there, belligerently drunk. And Michael Douglas ruins it for him. He's just like, I'm tired of dealing with Michael Douglas's cocaine bullshit. I just, <laughs> just want to sit down and have a nice meal alone in my cowboy and he breaks bar. Him because he starts yelling about about pussy all the time he just starts screaming well, that's pussy what's, so, in his cowboy bar that's what look there are saving graces to this movie one of the saving graces is he goes to the cowboy bar <laughs> gus is belligerent he takes him to a diner and you know what calms gus down chili he's at a diner and now he's eating chili and michael douglas says to him are you feeling better now gus and gus is like i'm all right takes another bite of chili hilarious can we, can we talk about his like deep v shirt when he goes clubbing yes with so you know what i thought of that dan when you were talking about how amazing and fashion everybody is that scene is amazing and it has probably my best my favorite shot in the movie was just when he follows her into the stall yes and she so like good. uses her leg to close the stall that scene mm-hmm. is just that is like that is fucking gorgeous. How beautifully paced and edited and shot that is. But dude, that yeah. dude is wearing a V-neck that should not be worn in that club or any club. Uh, it Michael Douglas in that club was like, I've never seen anyone look more out of place yeah. in that <laughs> yeah. in that moment. Oh, so if we're talking favorite shots of this movie, my favorite shot, favorite shot is go ahead. It's after they've interrogated her. They're watching her on the video screen as she's getting the lie detector test. And then as they're as that's wrapping up, she like looks at the camera as they're leaving. It's like, yes, you are going exactly where I want you to. Yeah. It's like that sums her up so fucking well. I I mean, yeah. I really I really like the facial reactions of the guys in the interrogation room, especially Wayne Knight. Like yeah. just He's the like- absolute sweat just pouring out <laughs> yes. of him. Uh, n- not even so much the actual like infamous shot, but just the reactions to it is yeah. is, is just fucking that amazing. That whole scene is fucking phenomenal. Like yeah. that is probably that it, and 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 then it like to have it followed to dance scene with the polygraph. Like that whole sequence shows how she owns literally. It doesn't matter man yeah. woman. She owns every person that she is in a room with, and it, yeah. it is it is fantastic. And it's kind of wild. Just circling back to like Sharon Stone of it all is yeah. the when we talked about Michael Douglas thinking that he is like in control of things right. like he 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 very quickly he very quickly descends into i am the asshole villain of someone else's story and just like walks around with that you know that big dick energy and then just comes crashing hard against just how inferior he is that's why you root for sharon stone in this movie I guess. because this piece of shit guy thinks he's in charge and just completely and utterly destroyed i'll say this you guys are making me enjoy the film talking to you more than i did when i watched it I would argue that Michael 
that Michael Douglas is the villain of the movie uh, with his heteronormity and um, Sharon Stone is just like, no, I'm gay. Just just deal. I'm queer. Deal with it. Like, you're, you're not going to box me in your little weird. In a in a in a world in which yeah. representation of queer folks, yeah. it was at a basically a bare minimum. Yeah. I understand why people would be like, hey, maybe that we should maybe maybe we shouldn't do this. And if people were somehow protesting it while it was filming, even yeah. Yeah. like that makes sense. And not to say that queer representation is is the yeah. you know, it's, a, it's 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 but it's a lot better than it was before. Yeah. In in a, in a much more varied landscape, something like this, I feel like we can much more appreciate for like actually this rules and it's it's it, 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 for for some aspects again deeply flawed. I, yeah, this, this it's is, not it's yeah, and that's one of the things I love about Verhoeven's movies is they are problematic, but I feel like they own they they just like yeah this is problematic deal with it like he's I feel like his movies are dealing with a lot very such complex things that yeah things are going to be problematic, but he's going to deal with them in an interesting way. And he's presenting things that like you don't normally see in movie, at least in mainstream movies. Like these are almost exploitation films. Well, maybe not total recall. Um, <laughs> watching this this time is like, wow, this is almost a slasher movie or it, like this. It, it just skirts this line between exploitation film and respectability. Like he, he, walks that tightrope really well this movie at least for me i think and i don't know uh, john unless you got other things you want to talk through th- th- this might wrap the conversation if i were to read this as verhoven's assault on heteronormative ideas you know i may come around in this fucking movie <laughs> because now i'm starting yeah. to see that as if yeah. If Michael Douglas is the villain of the piece because of his kind of kind of male centric, chauvinistic, sexist, heteronormative yeah. ideas, holy crap! That is a mind fuck of a twist. That is way better than the actual plot that Esther House wrote. For basic yeah, instinct. and it may not even be that. Like, we don't even necessarily, I think, have to assign intent to that. Yeah. Like, I think this could exist outside of Paul Verhoeven's vision for the movie. Oh, totally. But it, yeah. but it, but it. If it works, it works. I think this does work. This may have me come around on this movie. Not to watch it again anytime soon. No, 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 no. Oh, no. Yeah, this is like a once a year movie for me. (laughs) This is, I mean, in the in the breaks between conversation, between episodes, between segments, we were talking about uh, Passion of the Christ briefly. And I feel like this fits into the Passion of the Christ once in a lifetime is probably good. Yeah, probably. Like, I, I don't think I don't need to. I don't need. I saw it. I was happy for it. I don't think I need to watch it again. <laughs> so after we've had a few minutes to sort of like wind down and decompress from what it surprised us to be the most exciting <laughs> conversation of the whole thing, uh, I think we're now sort of uh, calmed down enough to sort of do some recommendations as we uh, close out the episode. Dan, what you got for us? I have two. Uh, the first is Paul Verhoeven's Jesus book. Um, so one of the things that Paul Verhoeven was trying to do for years amongst his many other projects, one of which was King Conan with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, that never happened, was a biographical film about Jesus. And he was going to avoid all of, we, we talked a little, I think we talked a little bit about it um, off mic, that he was going to avoid all of the miracles and he was going to look at Jesus from a historical perspective and that so i found it pretty cheap um chris will set agree 
Um, I think it's like a hundred bucks if you try to get it on Amazon, but if you get it through uh, Matt Zoller site's um, website, it's pretty affordable. Um, and I'm reading it. It's really fascinating. He goes into his filmmaking process a little bit and sort of his thoughts on other films related to Jesus uh, really hates passion of the Christ. <laughs> um, and my other recommendation is uh, his most recent film, which is Benedetta, um, which is his take on a nun in, I think the 15th century um, in Italy, no France, sorry. And whether or not she and the religious vision she has and the effect it has on the community around you. And I, it, it's fantastic. I got to see it in a theater um, in December. So I highly recommend it to anyone who's a Verhoeven fan. It's pretty much got all of his hallmarks. It's got action. It's got sex. Um, it's got a large, large organization trying to oppress people, which in this case is the Catholic church and there's play. So sounds like, uh, yeah. sounds like a good time. Uh, Chris, what you got for us today? Yeah, so I'm going to real quick just kind of second, um, peripherally second Dan's recommendation um, because as we were talking about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, I, I went and bought it as well. Uh, it's only $27 over <laughs> at Matt Zoller Sites uh, World Store. And uh, I'm going to just a huge plug for Matt Zoller Sites. He is uh, or was, I don't know if he still is, the editor-in-chief at RogerEbert.com. Uh, he was one of the first kind of online writers that really kind of made me want to get deeper and deeper into film. Uh, he's a fantastic critic, fantastic writer. Uh, and if you are looking for books on film, his his site, which is independently run, is a fantastic place to get autograph stuff. Uh, he wrote a number of books on Wes Anderson, one of my favorite directors. Um, he's done stuff with Guillermo del Toro, uh, just a ton of great stuff. He's doing a book on Deadwood right now, if you're a fan of the show Deadwood. So go check his site out and go order a couple of books. Um, so that's my first recommendation, only because Dan brought it up. My second recommendation, I'm going to go off the beaten path. Um, I haven't been doing a lot of film watching. I am woefully lax on my Criterion catch-up column. Uh, I haven't been doing – I've been catching up on television shows. John made me finish watching The Book of Boba Fett, which I'm not going to recommend here. Uh, but, John, you and I can have a conversation about that another time. What I am going to recommend is the debut film by Potsy – Hunt, I hope I say this right, Ponceroli, uh, Old Henry, starring Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, this is uh, came out last year. It's, it's, it's available dirt cheap to rent in a lot of different services. This is an American Western about um, an aging farmer and his young son kind of living out in the middle of nowhere and... Um, He's just trying to put his past behind him. There is a sense of uh, some terrible things that he may or may not have done. Um, and what winds up happening is he they find an abandoned horse in their field. He goes out to look and he sees a guy lying almost dead on the ground next to a satchel full of cash. Brings him back. Um, and then sure enough, Stephen Dorff and a couple of other people come uh, wrangling up, looking to get that money. And it's kind of like, are they, he says he's a sheriff, but it might be a bank robber. And it might be that old Henry is a lot more than a simple farmer with a shady past. Um, this movie is fantastic. It is rare that you get Tim Blake Nelson in a leading role. He is a fantastic character actor. Um, he is mesmerizing in this film. And there is a, there is a twist to the plot where you find out who he actually is. And 
Tim Blake Nelson has the he has this amazing ability. He's the exact same character. And my wife and I were watching this last night and she made a comment early on in the film. She's like, man, he looks like a wreck because he's just he's dirty and he's a farmer. He's got this bushy mustache and one eye is kind of sagging and one eye isn't. And his son hates him because he never taught him how to shoot a gun and all this stuff happens. And then the twist occurs and there's a final showdown and old Henry has to become something different and nothing has changed except his demeanor. And my wife turned to me and she goes, oh, my God, Tim Blake Nelson is hot. (laughs) And Tim Blake Nelson is a badass. And Tim Blake Nelson does all of this just with a, a, a shift in personality, a shift in movement, a shift in performance. It is, it is phenomenal. It's one of the best movies I've seen so far this year. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It has nothing to do with Paul Verhoeven. Uh, but as John knows, I am a sucker for Westerns. Um, and this was, this was a fantastic movie through and through. So can't recommend it enough. Old Henry. That I think you've sold me. If I can track down, I wouldn't mind watching that. That's easily rentable on Amazon or any other streaming service. Cause that's how we saw it. Excellent. Um, my recommendation for today is also nothing even close to Verhoeven esque. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Um, I had heard, I've, I've watched it for the first time a week or two ago. Um, and I remember seeing that name and just being intrigued by the title for a long time. And then when I finally was in a position to see it, because like even Criterion can't really escape the whole, uh, this is Canada, so the rights are different. So you only get maybe like two thirds of what you have in the States. Uh, um that's just life. I'm not that bothered by it. But when it finally, so the the first time around it was supposed to show up, it wasn't there. But now I saw, oh, it's finally here. And I want to see what a movie called The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is about. And it was a good time. <laughs> I, I, I had a really good time watching. I was like, this is fucking great. And then, yeah, that's a no... I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's, there's, you know, meat to chew on in uh, in in the way that we talked about, you know, Verhoeven S type of themes, but, uh, no, it was, uh, it was a good time and, uh, not even my better have had complaints about it. So that was, <laughs> that was nice. Awesome. Wait, was that your first Boonwell film? Yep. This is my first, uh, <laughs> this is my first one. No editing magic there, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> no editing magic. I had an instant and immediate response and definitely didn't have to look up a list of movies. <laughs> <laughs> to see if that was a to, to check on the answer to that question. Maybe that's a dig um, then for a future episode. We'll dig into uh, Buñuel films. That obscure I mean, object I've, of, I've, of desire. Antian just uh, so I Angelou, can, another real good one. I mean, just so I can learn how to pronounce the guy's name, I would be happy. Which is why I didn't mention his name because I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> we'll learn it. We'll learn it for the next time. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Um, I think that's probably going to wrap it up for us tonight. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. It was a blast. Thank you Thank for you. recommending for Holman yeah. um, and letting me, yep. uh, letting me sort of toss out the obvious Starship Troopers choice for a, <laughs> what I think ended up being a better podcast choice. Yeah. Was, oh, totally. Uh, basic <laughs> so, I will say, I do feel like Starship Troopers may be his most personal film, given that he grew up in Nazi occupied Holland next to a base that was constantly bombed. So, yeah. 
Yes. In, in, <laughs> yeah. and, and no one else making a movie about yeah. space Nazis and alien yeah. bugs could could reliably say that that was a personal film. But actually, right. you're right. In Verhoeven's case, that yes. tracks. <laughs> we may have to throw that in as like a bonus when we do the next Ver- Verhoeven episode. Yeah, maybe, maybe it'll be a, a yeah. lament for Starship Troopers. and Starship Troopers. Yeah, because I, I, like, I feel like, yeah, I know Starship Troopers is the one everybody there's a lot still there and i think it's a a film worth discussing but yeah i feel like a lot has been made of especially living through four fascist years under trump and people being like oh it's so predictable no paul verhoeven lived through this already and he just made a movie about it because he thought robert heinlein's book was terrible so that's a movie that's so good even the terrible acting performances through most of the cast doesn't spoil how fucking good Starship Troopers is as a movie. And it's part of the reason because he just wanted young, dumb, yeah. and beautiful people to be in this movie. He did get young, dumb, and beautiful people for that movie. He really did. And Clancy Brown. And Clancy Brown. Yes. And Michael Ironside. Yes. And Michael Ironside, of course. Right. Well, I think we've just, I think we've officially sort of committed ourselves to some kind of follow up. Oh, so, absolutely. Uh, I would be, yeah, I'd love to have you on again. Whenever, Dan. yeah, Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Uh, if you uh, ever do care. another anime episode, I would 100% be up for that. So, <laughs> I mean, we we could use, I mean, certainly Chris and I could Are use Are you some, saying uh, we didn't help end that, the entire discussion on anime with just our brief episode? There's more anime to talk about? Inconceivable. What? Let me let's go on a whole episode about Legend of the Overfiend. It is a porn movie. <laughs> Dear Lord, we have I'm to. I'm going to Google this that one. on incognito mode later, just so I know. Just just in case, I don't want my search results getting infected by it. <laughs> but uh, take care of each other, everyone. Stay safe. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, th- yeah. Thanks for coming. Just do all the normal stuff. We'll catch everyone later. Be well, everyone. Bye.